Rebel Love Podcast, where each week I'll bring you a new episode exploring love, sex, relationships, and money. Join me as together we question, explore, and strive to understand. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Rebel Love Podcast. Today I am talking about something really interesting, and that is Neuro Linguistic Programming, or NLP for short. And today we have Damon Cart with us. Uh, So thank you for being here, Damon. My pleasure. Damon is a three-time certified NLP practitioner and considered to be a natural talent by some of the best NLP trainers in the world. And this is the most exciting part of this interview. Today, we're going to be talking about how Damon used NLP to find his partner. Yes, this is going to be a super exciting episode. So um, first of all, thank you and welcome again being here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been using NLP in your life and how you became a practitioner? Oh, okay. Let's see how how briefly I can make this. It it was a long and winding road and it definitely was not like a straight, like, oh, I want to be an NLP person. And then uh, here I am. Um, So I'm from originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. uh, And I went to college there. I went to film school there. And there was a class called a philosophy of psychology. I wasn't a psychology or a philosophy major, but I, I love those subjects. So um, I took the class and the professor brought us through all the different, well, not all of them, but uh, the main uh, therapy models from the very beginning with Freud and then on. And he ended with hypnosis. Well, hypnosis was a part of it. Gestalt was a part of it. And then he ended with NLP. And NLP was a lot of the basics are based on gestalt and hypnosis. And he presented NLP like this is the mother of all of them. Like this is where it gets really out there. And so I loved all of this stuff. And I'd always volunteer for demonstrations whenever he would do them. And I just wanted to learn it, but it was, I was a broke college kid and nobody was teaching it in New Orleans at the time. So it was just kind of in the back of my head that I wanted to learn it. Uh, after I graduated college, I fell into a depression. Uh, 9-11 had just happened. It was the first time I had ever been out of school and some other not so great things happened. And so I fell into a depression, didn't have health insurance. I know that probably sounds crazy to uh, Australians, but that happens in America. Uh, I know it's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't go to a, I couldn't afford a therapist. And so I called my professor and I said, I'm not well, uh, would you help me out? He brought me in. He said, I don't believe in a free service, but I also don't need your money. So every time you come to see me, just volunteer, uh, donate money to charity or volunteer your time. It's like, great. So come back next week, come back next week. And in one session, months of depression was suddenly gone. And it just blew my mind. I was like, I've been suffering like this for like six months and suddenly in one hour it's gone. And I remember just walking out of his office, like looking around, I was like, is this really happening? And right then, I mean, I just knew how powerful NLP was. And once again, I wanted to learn it. And once again, it just wasn't on my agenda at the time. Jump forward uh, several years, I'm moving to, I'm moving from LA to Santa Cruz, where I live now. Uh, I find out that NLP was created here. And uh, I thought, well, great, I'll finally get to learn NLP. There'll be an NLP Institute on every corner. I get here. No, there's no NLP here. It started here, but it was like gone since the 1970s. And um, I was like, oh, you know, okay, whatever. I'll, you know, it was that wasn't on the agenda right away. Anyway, I was starting a new business. It was the height of the financial crisis. My marriage was falling apart. I had two very young kids, two kids under two, 
and I fell into another depression. So uh, there were no NLP practitioners that I knew of or none that I trusted like I trusted my professor. So I, and this time I did have health insurance. So I went through traditional therapy. It took me an entire year to come out of the, the depression. So we're talking one hour versus an entire year. And when that happened, and also as I was still going back to that therapist, I was feeling much better, but he only knew sort of like this base level, like this ground level, like how to get you out of the ground, out of the hole and here. But if you walked into his office and you were here, he brought you here and it wasn't good. I felt like I couldn't progress. And so I thought, okay, finally, I felt like I could justify taking NLP training for my mental health to maintain it. So I didn't, cause I knew if I didn't do anything different, I was going to end up right back in the same place, depressed. And so I did find that there was an NLP training and an NLP Institute at UCSC where NLP was created every summer. Uh, strangely enough, they just don't really advertise it to the locals. <laughs> there, when I went to that first training, I think I was one of only three Americans there. It's very wow. strange. That is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, it felt like coming home. It felt like this was a calling. It felt like it was a purpose. I didn't know that I wanted to be a teacher or a coach. I just thought I was going to fix my insurance business and I was going to be much happier. And I just became obsessed with NLP. So right after I got out of that training, I kind of knew, like, I didn't know NLP. Like I, I knew that there was, you really have to practice it. It's not something you just, you know, sit and, and absorb. Right. So I found another NLP Institute in San Francisco. I jumped into their practitioner program. And then after their practitioner program, they had a hypnosis program. I was like, okay, I got to do this. And then uh, coming back around at uh, NLP University, they were having the master practitioner training. So I jumped into that. And that's when things like really shifted for me. I realized how unhappy I was in my marriage. I realized how happy I was with the business I had started. And it wasn't me who was the problem. It was, I had chosen things. I'd chosen things that were just not a good fit for me. And so I'd made some major changes at that point. And I started teaching, and this is probably interesting too to think back about it. I started teaching because I wanted to learn it even better. I wasn't going to teach it to like, because I felt like the world needed to know it. It was more about me. It was more about me. Yeah. And people were also saying, hey, you should really try coaching. I think you would be good at this. Because when I would do, uh, especially in the hypnosis class, everybody wanted to work with me and, and practice. Like they wanted to practice with me anytime we learned something new but every person I hypnotized cried. And so people were like, Hey, Damon, I want to work with you. And I'm like, uh, do you want to cry? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and interesting. Uh, it wasn't on purpose. I wasn't trying to make people cry, but it, it just, I guess we were, you know, and I would go with them in a sense, like I'd go into the trance with them and we'd go really, really deep. And um, so people were just saying, Hey, you know, give coaching a try. I think you'd be good. And so I started doing it and I started enjoying it. And then teaching turned into something more than just self, you know, self-motivated. It did feel like I, this was a calling. I needed to do this. I wanted to share it. I wanted to see people uh, fulfill their potential and get better. And uh, so a practice group that I had for NLP eventually turned into what was called NLP gym. And then from NLP gym, I called it life mastery gym because sometimes I talk about other things besides NLP. Right, or, right. Yeah. yeah. I definitely know the feeling of if you want to learn something better, teach it. I did the same thing in my life. Um, yeah, actually, someone asked me to be a teacher, and I was like, I don't want to be a teacher. Then they were like, It'll make you better. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> okay, so I'm not sure if we covered this. Uh, let's go a little bit more in depth of what actually is NLP, and then, and then I'll then we'll move on to the next step. Yeah, it's a question I'm always afraid when people ask because it's uh, it can go in a hundred different directions and it can go uh, 10 miles deep. 
And then I wonder, okay, did I lose the person? You know, what's the best way to explain this to you or to your listeners? So the best way that I can explain it is, so neuro is the five senses and your neurology is where you do all the processing of all the information that is hitting you at, you know, at all times. Uh, linguistic is um, how important language is in mapping your reality. And then programming is we have these unconscious programs that have been there, been created since we were born because your mind is always looking for more and more efficient ways to conserve energy, to not have to renegotiate every choice you make. And so we kind of go on autopilot and that's our habits, that's our routines, our ways of thinking. The problem is, is that uh, if those programs were made, often made when you were very young, a lot of times you're working with outdated programs. So you're like working off of Windows 95, you know, even though it's 2020. And so what NLP does is we go into that uh, unconscious programming, we pull it out. Uh, we look at it, we find what's wrong, and we basically rewire it and then put it back in and let it go unconscious again. Uh, <clears throat> to take it even further than that is you can't actually know objective truth because it's always being passed through your objective, I mean, your subjective senses. And to, to say you, that you know truth would mean that you would have to know all of truth. You can't know a piece of the truth and know, and, and know truth. It has to, it's, all, it's an all or, or nothing kind of thing. So all we're left with through our subjective filters is to get clues about what is true. Now, science is a beautiful thing. It's, it's ideal is to find objective truth, knowing that it never will, you know, because everything is, as long as light, you know, as long as there's existence, there's more to learn. Okay. So science takes that direction and we, we want science. Sometimes people think that I'm arguing NLP over science and no, absolutely not. What NLP does is it looks back at the observer, not at the observed, and says, is there a structure here that we can code and understand? And that's what NLP, the developers of NLP set out to do. And that is really the only truth you're ever going to know is your subjective reality. And so we map reality. We can't know reality directly, so we map it and we represent that map internally. And that's really what we operate from. That's really what we base our decisions from. And so we can know that to be true because we can be in the same place, so same location, same space, and at the same time. And that's the two dimensions in which we process reality and, com and have completely different experiences. If we go to a concert and we're there at the same time, and we're standing next to each other. So we're basically in the same space. You could be enjoying the concert like it's the best experience of your life. And I could be hating it like it's the worst experience of my life. So why mm -hmm. is that? Well, it's that subjective reality. And then the same thing goes with, you could have twins, you know, people brought up in the same household, basically given all the same things. One of them is very successful and one of them is not. So what is that about? Well, that's the map of reality each is carrying. One is an impoverished map and one is a map rich with resources and choices. So with NLP, we're always looking to go under the hood, uh, into the unconscious, find that map and enrich it with resources and choices so that you can fulfill your potential, so that you do experience fulfillment and that you do become the success you want to become. Awesome. I just think you explained that so well. Thank you for that. Can you explain, so with this going under the hood, uh, I find this part really interesting. How did you use NLP to rewire the part of you that wasn't finding a girlfriend and that now you've used this technique to find? So I'm, I'm 
this is the golden question for this interview. This is what we're really I'm going to give, give you a little bit of backstory here. I think it's only to be fair. Um, so before that, before I met my girlfriend, um, so in between meeting my girlfriend and getting a divorce, um, I was 38 or no, it was a little bit earlier than that. Well, I was separated and then I was divorced later, but so it was, uh, got back into the dating world at 37, which is middle age. I don't care if you, who you are, 37 is middle age, because if it's not, then how long do you think you're going to live? And a lot of people don't realize that. And they think middle age is at 50. No, it's not. How many people live to hundred? Anyway, that's my little <laughs> tangent. Uh, so at 37, I was like, okay, I'm middle age and I'm in the dating scene again. Whoa, this is scary. I mean, I had been with my ex, uh, seven years, uh, before marriage and then eight years married. So 15 years, it's a long time, really long to time not be dating. Yeah. And I didn't even know what it was like at that age. Like, do, that was like, you know, do I just go with women my age? Do I go younger? Do I go older? Like, I, I mean, these were all these questions that I had. Um, so I decided to make it a kind of a project to, if I saw someone who was interesting, attractive, whatever, that I would go and talk to her. And that was so freaking hard. Like that was, <laughs> um, I felt so self-conscious and I would shake and I would have all these fears. And it, it took me using a lot of NLP techniques just to get me to, to go and do it. And then it got to a point where I could do it, but I always had fear about doing it. And over a period of time, I finally just burned out. Like the fear just got to me to the point where I, I just couldn't bring myself to, to approach anymore. Um, even though it had gone pretty well, like most women, if for, you know, if you approach them and you're nice and you say a compliment, you know, we think the woman's going to turn around and like scream at us, but no, they usually take that very well. They go, well, well, thank you. And then they might say they have a boyfriend, in which case I'd say, oh, well, good for him. And then I would move on. So there was nothing really bad about it, but I just, I couldn't let go of that fear. And so it got to a point though, I, I, I just said, okay, I, you know, I'm just done. And, and so six months went by and it was six months without almost any dating. I'd gone from like dating constantly to like zero. And I, but I felt like I needed that. I felt like I had to, to, to figure something else out. And so I was working on an online training. My, my mentor was not going to be around for much longer. So I went to him and I said, Hey, I want to make a, an online training of your work. Um, you know, is that okay? And he said, yeah, absolutely. Go for it. So I started working on that. And at the end part of the training is a part where you deal with boundaries, your own sort of, uh, personal boundaries. Now, a lot of times people think of these as being very abstract, but if we worked on it, I could show you how it, it's very real to you. You don't really see your boundaries, but we could make them visible if you wanted to. And one way that we do that is, you know, you even refer to it as like personal space, right? You know, somebody gets in your personal space, what happens? You feel it. You know, they get, somebody gets too close to you who you don't know, you, you, you retract like that. Mm -hmm. This is before they touch you. So there must be something in your personal space that you feel that kind of like, ooh, you know. So most of us have visual boundaries, actually. And, and that's, you know, knowing how close the person can get. Some people have auditory boundaries, which are not as good because they can get you into trouble. If you hear something you look around, you might not be able to find where it's coming from. But if you see it, then it's there and you can see something from a distance. So that's a great way to protect yourself. So boundaries are necessary. And the reason they're there usually is to protect you. But they also are protecting you from things that aren't really a threat for, for you. So if you think about the time you had to get up in class and give a book report or something, and you said something funny and everybody laughed at you, or the time that 
you did go and pass a love note to a girl you liked, you know, and then she told everybody and everybody was laughing at you. So you create boundaries based on that pain and suffering that you experienced so that you don't experience it again. It's there to protect you. So like, well, I'm not going to do that again. And, you know, and so I started to recognize that that's what a lot of that fear was about. Like this, uh, that embarrassment, that shame that was still there locked inside of me and that was held there in place by these boundaries that were trying to protect me from experiencing it again. And so as I was working on the training and the, the, the training is the, the whole barrier thing is not necessarily to, to go out and, and, and meet a date, but, um, but though it, it didn't say you couldn't do that. Uh, <laughs> I asked myself, why, why had I not done that? Why had I never used this? And uh, so I was like, okay, I need to get out. I'd been working on this training. I was in my, uh, in my cave working on this training. I hadn't been socializing very much. I hadn't been on a date in quite a long time. I go out to downtown Santa Cruz, broad daylight, and I see this very cute woman, uh, very young woman, she's 20 years younger than me, uh, walking down the street, and immediately I wanted to meet her, and, but immediately that fear just came up, and I was just like, well, I can't do that, you know, she's too young, she's too, she's too cute, you know, it's just like all these things, all these reasons why I couldn't go and talk to her, and I was like, wait a minute, I just worked on my boundaries while I was working on that training. I should go to do something about this. And so there's different ways that you can deal with your boundaries. You can either expand them so that it includes more people. And then you'll feel very connected to the people who are within that boundary. And it's fascinating because you will feel the difference right away. And I, and so then, then the other one is to completely drop all of your boundaries, which feel, makes you feel very vulnerable and naked. But if you can get past that initial shock of that, Everything gets very Zen-like. You feel very much one with everything. And I really believe that that's what, like your Zen Buddhist, you know, that's what they're after is that feeling. And it's probably why a lot of them uh, meditate in caves because it gives them some sort of feeling of protection around them. So I don't recommend that you have no boundaries all the time. Your boundaries are there to protect you, alert you to possible dangers. But it was downtown Santa Cruz, very safe town. Uh, broad daylight. And so I was just like, okay, I had to negotiate with myself. Okay, let the boundary drop. And I'm going to feel fear. I'm going to feel vulnerability. I'm going to feel naked. Okay, deep breath. And then suddenly I had that kind of zen-like feeling. And then I looked over at her and I was like, she suddenly seemed like the most friendly person ever. And there was no reason, nothing holding me back from going and talking to her. So I approached her. I didn't know she was from Romania. I just thought she was, you know, somebody who lived in town. And uh, we got to talking and I asked her out, I asked for her phone number and asked her out for coffee. We went to coffee the next week. And again, when we went to, went to coffee, I dropped my boundary and, and just, you know, had a, a pleasant conversation with her. And I, I also, and you want to be careful if you, under, if you start to learn the stuff, you got to be careful about how you do it. If you're going to do it with other people without them knowing what you're doing. But anyway, I elicited her boundary. And then I suggested that she put me inside of it. <laughs> and so when she did, it, it was a little jarring for her. But once she got comfortable with it, then she and we talked about this later after we, you know, we're like in, in a relationship. She's like, yeah, when you did that on our date, it was a little jarring. But after, after a while, I got used to it. And then she did feel um, a rather strong connection with me. And then from there, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And we're still together more than the two years later. The relationship developed. Wow. Wow. So, um. So on that day, when you, when you talked to her about um, entering her boundary, what was the conversation that you had? If you feel like sharing, <laughs> this might you be. All this my dirty secrets, don't you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, 
So it was more like she wanted to know what I did. And she was, I think one of the reasons why she decided to go on the date with me is because I told her I was a YouTuber and she, she was really into uh, tech and social media. And so she thought that was pretty cool. And also coming from Romania, you know, it's like to meet a, you know, like an American YouTuber, even though I didn't have many subscribers at the time, it was, she just found it interesting. So she wanted to know more about what I teach, what I do. And it really, this is a great setup for using this stuff with people <laughs> without them really realizing, because I can kind of use it with them realizing, but then do things that they don't really realize, which it's, it's a little manipulative, but if you don't have bad intentions, I think it's fine. Uh, and if you're careful and you're, you, you know, you don't take advantage of people, I think it's all fine to do these things. And I teach it that way too. So it was sort of like, uh, Hey, you know, you, you have this personal space and you have these boundaries and let me show you some cool, cool things with this, you know? And so I would get a little close to her and she would pull back. I said, okay, you see, that's your boundary. Now let's elicit that. Like, what is it? If it had a color, what would it look like? And then it turned out she had this like spherical, like bubble around her that she could see sort of like, you know, if you look at plexiglass or glass, you can kind of see a reflection there. But at the same time, it made it, everything very visible around her. And so I just said, hey, wouldn't it, you know, just for fun here, what would it be like if I was inside that bubble with you? And so just to, just to answer the question, she had to think about it. Right. And so when she thought about it, you could tell it was like it was a little uncomfortable for her. And, so I, and she said so. And I said, well, hey, well, you know, don't, you know, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, so take me out of it. But just because I had made that suggestion, and then I also pulled it back and said, well, well take me out it still sort of created a pathway to it was okay for me to be there. Mm-hmm. And then, and she even said, like, we talked about this later. She said from that point, uh, yeah, I felt very connected to you. Now here's the thing. Like if we were such opposing personalities, what would have probably would have happened was it, we would have probably still felt a connection, but probably would have turned more into like friends, you know, cause it, you can't like force, this thing to really happen. If you're just really not compatible, then you're not compatible. But it turned out we were very compatible. And one way that I knew that I used some more NLP, I elicited her values, um, which is a very pleasant process. If someone ever elicits your values without really telling you what they're doing, you, you'll, you'll tell them everything because it's, they're talking about you and what it is that you like and what you enjoy in your life. Mm-hmm. And so nobody usually it's rare that somebody is really asking these questions, They're not probing questions. It's more, you know, getting in touch with what is it that, you know, really does it for you. Mm-hmm. And so you just give, you know, everything. And so she gave me all of this information. And then that's when I started here. I'll, I'll be honest. I felt a little I don't, insecure is not the right word, but I thought, okay, she's very young. She was 20 at the time. I was 40 at the time. And I thought, okay, I'm never going to be able to keep the attention of someone so young. You know, they're going to just be off and, not really true for her. She's very, she's a very focused, very intelligent person. And, and even 20 year olds who are very intelligent, it's just, you have a lot going on. You not right. a lot to sort out, a lot to figure out and a lot of things that, you know, catch your attention. But what I did was is I took her values and I started to paint a, a vision of us being together, experiencing those values together because they were very compatible with my values. And this wouldn't have worked really, you know, again, it's one of those things if you tried to force it, it might work at first, but then it would fall apart over time. But um, I do this with myself when I set goals and when I work with clients one-on-one, that's the whole idea is we need to know what it is you want, elicit the deeper values that are unconscious behind that, and then create a vision of moving in that direction and also installing those values as qualities of who you are. Um, So I kind of just did the same process with her without her sort of realizing it. And um, 
but it, you know, this is all good stuff. This is the stuff that she wants in life. This is the stuff that fulfills her. So here's this guy talking about it with her and not only talking about it with her, like painting a vision in the future of moving toward that. And so this really pulled us together and made us start, start planning and wanting to do things together. And it just, and I would suggest doing this for any relationship that's important to you that, you know, you want to, you want to have a long lasting relationship with. It's really important that you both know what your values are in a relationship mm-hmm. and that they, you can bring them together and be compatible with that and create a vision together. I mean, who, what relation, you know, I don't know anybody who does this. Not that I'm not saying nobody does, but uh, if you want a relationship to be strong and to last, find out each other's values and then paint that vision. You got, you want to know that you're moving towards something together. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. that's what I did. And I eventually told her everything that I did just to make sure that, you know, for my own feeling like I, you know, I, that I didn't like take advantage of her. And she was like, yeah, I remember all those conversations. I didn't realize exactly what was happening. I just knew that it felt really, really good. And I was like, who is this guy? You know, yeah. <laughs> it just seems to like pop into my life. And, you know, suddenly we're often doing this thing together. Um, so yeah, it was, it was intentional on my part. And uh, she went along for the ride, thankfully. And yeah, we're very happy together. So let's say someone wants to replicate this exercise for themselves. So once you have established somebody's values, how do you, what are some prompts to start that conversation of painting the picture of you moving in that direction together? Like, how does that, that part actually come about? Because I'm sure everybody would be like, okay, great. How can I replicate this? <laughs> it, takes, it does take some practice. So, and I would suggest practicing it where the person knows what you're doing. You know, so it's just, you don't need that extra pressure of like, oh, I'm trying to do this sort of covertly. That comes with getting to know the process very well. So I would first say practice eliciting your own values, uh, which is basically um, asking yourself, what is it that you want in a particular context, like something tangible, and then say, okay, well, what is important to me about having that or getting that? Another way of asking that is what would that do for me? And you keep asking that question, those questions and you just go deeper and deeper into, your, in, into those values until you're hitting these really like, high level, very general, intangible things like happiness and joy and peace and love and freedom. And so once you're hitting that, then you say, okay, well, what would this look like in my life? If I rep- if all of these values was represented, I like to use the visual, even if you're not very visual, the visual is very powerful because you can access more information in the visual all at once than you can through auditory or kinesthetic. I mean, if you can imagine, if you look at a painting, you don't have to focus on each individual color. You can see them all at once. Whereas mm-hmm. imagine two or three people are talking to you at once, or you're listening to th- two or three different songs at once. You really can't comprehend all that. Mm. So visual is very powerful and you can throw like all of your highest values out in front of you, imagining it's like on a canvas and it should not be very detailed. The goal, your goal should be very precise, but your vision should be vague. It's more about a direction you're going in. And so in, in those words that you use, that represent your values also become anchors because they're all I had to do was say my girlfriend's uh, values and her eyes would just like, you know, brighten up. So those values, those deep level values, once you elicit them, they act as anchors. And so you just say stuff like, you know, Hey, what would, so I love to travel and she loves to travel and that fulfills a lot of her values. It fulfills a lot of my values. So I was like, Hey, you know, wouldn't it be great if we took a trip, and then I would start using her values. And so now she's starting to visualize what we're going to do together. Um, and here's the other thing too, and, and she didn't mention this. She was like, you know, everything you said we were going to do, we did. Right. Like if I said, you know, hey, imagine us going to 
uh, San Francisco and going to the uh, Contemporary Art Museum. And she was like, oh, I'd love to do that. And then, you know, and so I'm painting that vision, painting those pictures. And we did it. And then, you know, we just kept doing all those things. So that's another thing. You can't, well, you can, but it, don't paint the picture and paint the vision and then don't follow through with it. It's like right. somebody selling you something, but never delivering the goods. Yeah. So you've got to deliver the goods or eventually the person's going to go, okay, this is just really empty. You just keep saying these things, but we never do them. Right. So you got to, you got to back this up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's where you're like, that's where the main payoff is. It's like, oh my gosh, this guy, I mean, there's nothing sexier than someone who does what they say they're going to do. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, it's really, uh, yeah, just showing up for the date was, you know, she said, yep, I'll meet you for coffee. And she did. And I was like, wow, that's pretty hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had, I've been stood up so many times, especially, yeah, uh, me too. Say, but a lot of the younger you go, a lot of times, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll meet you out. And then now, you know. Yeah. Actually, I want to point that out that I'm really glad you mentioned that because you know, we often feel like, oh, I'm the only one. Does this, is this happen to other people? But I've been stood up as well. And I always find it really kind of strange that people would stand you up and not talk. Cause it's like, you know, we just met, you don't owe me anything, but it kind of a bit of courtesy to just say, Hey, I'm, I'm not coming. <laughs> or, you know, it's always a kind of a strange thing to me really, but um, yeah, quite rude. Yeah. Yeah. I would think, <laughs> but um, yeah. So if anyone's listening to this and this has happened to you, you're certainly not alone. We've, uh, we've felt it. Yeah. So again, coming back to the following through is very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, great. This is awesome. I love also the thing that really stood out to me of what you said is the first part where you saw her in the street or wherever you saw her and you were conscious about your own boundaries or what was coming up for you. And then you did something about it. So let's, can we go back to that and talk just a bit, a, a bit about, I mean, I know you said you'd just been working on it with the course as well. But what are some ways that we can kind of recognize when this is happening for us, like those bounce, we're hitting a wall, and then how can we consciously bring down that wall, but then also be okay with whatever the outcome is? Because yours ended up working out, but it doesn't always work out. And I guess um, what happens, or I, I find what, what could happen is you lower your boundaries, you get rejected, and it might even be in a not so nice way, and then you clam up again. And then you're like, okay, well, that didn't work, so I'm not going to do that anymore. <laughs> So how can we avoid that state and be like, okay, keep trying with confidence, even if we do kind of get injured by the other person's behavior? So I'm not sure that I can answer all of those questions in the <laughs> amount of time that we have because those are big questions and there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, again, I, I'm going to go back to uh, knowing what your values are. Um, and that means you need to elicit your values in every major life context that you have. You know, okay in my career, what is it that I want? And then go deeper, deeper, deeper and understand your values there. And then do a hierarchy of them, which are the most important values. Take your social life. What do I want in my social life? Elicit those values. And once you have this palette, you know, all of your values and which ones are most important, the clarity will, will be amazing. The clarity will a lot of times just naturally draw you toward what it is you want anyway. It also, because you know your values, which are actually vague, goals are specific, values are vague. You become more flexible and adaptable when things don't go your way. Okay, that strategy didn't work. I'll throw it out and I'll, I'll find a new strategy because you know your direction, you know the deeper value that's behind it. A lot of times people don't know their deeper values. So when a strategy, all they have is their strategy. And so when it doesn't work, they feel crushed. Mm. So that's the same, kind of the same thing with rejected. So if I'm going out to approach women and I know 
you know, okay, well, what is, what is my objective here? My goal is to get a date. Okay. But if I take that deeper and I say, okay, well, what's important about getting a date? And I go really, really deep with this. I'm going to start coming up with stuff like connection, love, freedom, you know, and it's like, wow, just from wanting a date, you know, like all these things, all these deeper things are attached to it. So what happens when you do that is the obstacles don't feel like obstacles anymore. I go out, I talk, I meet, they, they say no. Well, I'm still connected to the higher values that I've been working with. So that's okay. All right. This, this interaction is not going to fulfill my value or my values. So I go find someone else to talk to, you know, and you just keep going. And so the other thing that rejection has to do with is a feeling of low self-worth. And so this is a big conversation too, but, and I suffered from self, low self-worth for most of my adult life, a lot of my teenage years too. And if you do this work for long enough, you will eventually reach a point where you realize there is no such thing as self-worth. Now I can tell you this and you can go, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, but I still feel low self-worth at times. And I, I totally understand it because just telling you this is not going to cure it, but it at least can set you in the direction of doing something about it. And that is, there's just no way you can judge your own worth. You are not qualified to do that because it, well, first of all, it's purely subjective for you. You're on the inside. And this idea that you can judge your own self-worth, that implies that you can split yourself in two and then one of you can step to the side and judge the other half. But well, who's judging that, that, the part that's judging? And this can just go into like infinite absurdity. So that's not a thing. And then other people judging you, well, are judging your, your, your worth. How could they possibly? You know, who knows everything about you? Who knows what's going on inside of you? And then every person would have a different judgment of it. Mm-hmm. So once again, it, it totally voids itself. So you're probably hearing this and saying, okay, I totally get it, but man, I still feel this thing. And, and so like, I get it. You really have to build up your, your, your self-concept. And so when you, take, when you understand what your values are, then you look at those values and you say, okay, am I these qualities? As, are these values showing up as qualities of who I am? And that's where my mentor's uh, self-concept model comes in. You can then take those values and install them as solid qualities of who you are. And when that happens that's when life gets real. Because when you believe you are the qualities that you value most highly, that's where purpose comes from. That's where fulfillment comes from. That's where meaning comes from. That's where you're, you, you are self-generating your meaning, the meaning of your life. You are creating it in the moment. You're not relying on anyone else to validate it for you. And you get completely away from that. Like, so whether or not someone rejects me says nothing about my self-worth. It says nothing about, uh, there's no validation there whatsoever. It's not validating or not validating. I know who I am. All it is is feedback. So somebody says no, I just go, oh, okay, well, is there any useful information for me here? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm just not her type. There's no getting right. around that. You know, or maybe, maybe this, maybe that. So when somebody is critical of me, and believe me, the more you become in the public, the more you do receive criticism. You should see some of the posts, uh, some of the comments I get on my videos. Yeah, I bet. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> People you, are you, nasty. Right. So even like the worst criticism, like where they're, they're intentionally being mean, I, I still look at it and say, okay, is there anything useful here for me? And if it's totally yes. not useful, I throw it away. Like there's nothing, you know, I'm, I don't go, oh, well, am I really this terrible person that they think I, no, that, that, that is not useful. So what mm-hmm. is useful rather than, Oh, does this, you know, say I'm a terrible person. There's no way to validate your worth, Mm -hmm. not you, not anyone else. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, um, 
and there are a lot of processes that just go into that. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the best shot you have at uh, moving in that direction right now is to understand what your values are. Now, the boundaries thing is it's understanding what, where, you know, where is your personal space? How far out does it go? And so one way you can sort of figure this thing out is imagine you're in a room with somebody you don't know. And, you know, this is not like necessarily a sinister looking character. It's just somebody you don't know. And then imagine they start stepping closer to you. And how close can they get to you in the front before you go, okay, that's too close. Okay. So if it's right in front of you, it's probably going to be pretty far, maybe arms distance. And then you imagine they're on the side of you. And we tend to allow people to get closer to us on the side than in the front. But everybody's boundary is going to be different. I've seen, I've come across many different types. So once you sort of have an understanding of the space that you feel safe in, then we start coding it. Okay. What is your boundary like? Is it like a rope? Is it like steel? Is it like a bubble? You know, so you start at, you know, you start asking these questions. A lot of times people say, well, it's none of those things. I'm making this up. And it's like, okay, wait till we start changing your boundary. If you think you're making this up, which you are, but it's also how you make meaning around mm-hmm. you. This is your reality. You should, uh, it's funny when I'm teaching this to a live group to see the look on their faces. When we start changing these things, maybe their face starts contorting and they're like, oh, I don't like that. And then we can change it to a different way. And they go, oh, I love that. You know, so mm-hmm. there's something definitely there. And then you can get to the point where once you get very familiar with your boundary, then you can start asking yourself, okay, what would it be like to just let it go? And then all these fears start to come up and then you just reassure those fears. So boundaries and fears and all that. So the, the boundaries there is sort of like a tripwire to bring up the fear to, to warn you. Okay. So it's like right. an, an alert system. So we don't want to, we don't want to push this part away from us. We don't want to resist this part. Anytime we experience resistance, what most people will do is resist it, call it self-sabotage. And then, you know, they're, they're angry at a part of themselves. Well, this just creates more inner conflict. And then you have to get into the whole idea of like, well, I need to will myself through this. I need to discipline myself through this, which is not a good idea. In fact, as much as possible, I'm trying to rid myself of ever using willpower and discipline. And I'm almost there. So when I experience resistance, it's like, okay, well, this is a part of me that has a positive intent that's trying to do something positive for me. I welcome it. I ask it to tell me uh, what is the positive intent of this resistance. Tell me, you know, what's the message you're trying to tell me here? And I actually like think out those words and ask that part of me. And if you're patient, you wait for a little bit, you will get an answer. It might not come out as a sentence or, you know, but you'll get a sense of what that is about. And then you ask yourself, Get it stated in the positive because it usually comes out in the negative. Like, I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to be disappointed. And you say, okay, if you don't want me to be hurt, what do you want instead? Got to get it stated in the positive. So it might say, well, I want you to be happy. Okay, wow. Okay, happiness is a, is a, a really high level value. Does happiness fit in with the other thing that I'm trying to do? Of course it does. It fits very well with my other values. Go back to that part of me. Okay. Would you like to work with the rest of me on doing this thing and ensuring and trying and, you know, fulfilling happiness and whatever your concerns are, would you be that alert system for me to let me know when I need to pay attention to something that might harm me? And that part is usually like, yeah, you know, this is what I've been waiting for since, I, you know, you were seven years old and you, and I got isolated from the rest of you. You know, it's, it's, it's a strange thing, but it, we do tend to function in parts like this. And when those parts get isolated, they have so many resources that we, we lose. And so when people talk about fear of success or, or self-sabotage, it's like, no, 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 no. This is a part of you that is an important part of you. And if you keep pushing it away, 
it's it you you miss out on all the treasure that it has and so consciously you usually know what your objectives are and unconsciously is where this other part of you is has a positive intent that's been forgotten and mm-hmm. so you're reuniting that part with the rest of you and so if you can imagine when you're going at something as a whole human being fully united nothing's going to stop you i mean nothing stops you at that point so that's that's the that's the ongoing work that I do with myself going forward. And that's what I did when I met my girlfriend. Wow, that is like that was such a great answer. Gosh, it really <laughs> tied everything up with a bow. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And um, this has been super helpful. Um, where can people find out more about you if they would like to follow you or just work with you? Sure. Um, if you well, I have a ton of material, a ton of videos on my YouTube channel, Life Mastery Gym. I have almost 700 videos. So you can just dive into that and find whatever you like. And um, usually in those videos, I offer something for free, like a next step. If you want to take that next step, if you go to lifemasterygym.com, you can find a lot of those free things that I give away. And then you can also find out how to get in touch with me. If you want to do one-on-one coaching, Um, I also have ongoing trainings that I do. And so best thing to do is just find me on my website, message me. And I reply to everyone. Uh, I reply to everyone's comments too, on my videos and on my YouTube channel. So, you know, I'm not hard to find. I'm not hard to reach. Hey, you found me, right? Yeah, and we'll we'll pop all the links below so everyone can get in touch. Damon, thank you again for being here. It's been a pleasure. Same here. Thanks for listening to the Rebel Love Podcast, the podcast about love, sex, relationships, and money. If you like this episode, please support us by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform and find all the details of this episode and more at rebellove.com forward slash podcast. 